So tonight's topic is experimental treatment in a pandemic. We plan on discussing experimental treatments during a pandemic. Now, any medical treatment carries some risk. If you overdose on five times the recommended dosage of Tylenol, you risk permanently damaging your liver. The overall question tonight will be what level of risk is permitted from a halachic or Jewish law perspective when facing a pandemic? Let's split this question up into two separate parts. On a macro level, for the sake of finding a cure, what are we permitted to do? Can a healthy person endanger him or herself for the sake of society? Can he or she engage in a vaccine trial for the sake of finding community protection? In this hypothetical scenario, we would have a trial set up where healthy, vaccinated 25-year-olds deliberately expose themselves to the disease to see if the vaccine works. That's one question. And at a micro level, is a currently sick or otherwise high-risk person permitted to try an experimental therapy to save themselves, i.e. hydroxychloroquine or any other drug that has clearly defined risks? but unclearly defined benefits. Before we get to the halachic perspective, let's discuss this from a medical point of view. In an ideal world, a pandemic would occur and we'd have a perfect treatment ready to go. In today's not yet perfect world, we are left grasping a possible treatments in the face of a disease that for most people will range from a cold or perhaps a week or two in bed, but for a small percentage of people, it'll actually become life-threatening. And currently, there is no known cure, which is not unusual. There are many, many viruses extant today that we know about. Those with a high mortality rate and transmissibility, but could be targeted with a vaccine. Think measles. Those with high morbidity that cannot yet be targeted with a vaccine, but can be successfully suppressed and lower its mortality level. Think HIV. And then there are those with low morbidity. We don't have vaccines for, we don't have drugs for, think a common cold. The only drug we have for that is uh, Bubby's chicken soup, right? So there's no vaccine and there's no actual drug for that. But viruses, there is no known cure specifically for co this coronavirus. And in general, for viruses, there is no known cure for any virus. There are cures for the symptoms, but not cures for the actual virus. So the thought process in the medical field from the beginning has been to try to repurpose different drugs which have shown some antiviral qualities on different occasions, ideally ones that have a long safety record in other circumstances. For example, hydroxychloroquine, some of the HIV medications, and perhaps to also speed development of newer antiviral drugs that don't necessarily have the same long safety record. Think remdesivir, which is a drug that's been around for a couple of, you know, almost a decade already. And it's been tried on a couple of different types of, of viruses. And we can have some level of establishment in terms of what its safety record is, but it has not been used on anywhere near the numbers that let's say hydroxychloroquine or HIV medications. Now, the long-term goal is to find a vaccine that will hopefully, hopefully prevent most of the loss of life. Until then, we're left with throwing the kitchen sink and learning things on the fly. About two months ago, my uncle, a relatively healthy and vigorous 71 years young, got sick and he got progressively worse until he had to be intubated on a ventilator. The hospital he was at is Westchester Medical Center. 
It was inundated with patients first from Westchester itself, which is home to New Rochelle, where there was an early outbreak at the Young Israel of New Rochelle, and then from other places in New York City, including Rockland County, which had a large outbreak. In this hospital, they're focused on helping their sick patients and were willing to try any and all treatments at the same time. I remember discussing the amount of drugs that he was on and the specific drugs that he was on, my uncle, together with a couple of doctors who are on tonight with us. And they all agreed there wasn't one treatment that's being explored worldwide that my uncle was not on at that moment, right? So he was on a whole cocktail of drugs. Thank God he survived and he's doing much, much better. Unfortunately, because he was on so many different medications, it's gonna be impossible to figure out from his treatment protocol which, if any of the drugs actually worked against the disease, or was it something else that just got him through the disease? Now, this is always an issue. Whenever you have a brand new disease that is spreading around the world, the ability to run a gold standard trial where the patients are randomly enrolled in a double blind trial where neither the doctors or the patients know who is receiving the experimental treatment and who is receiving the placebo it's incredibly compromised. We don't have that option of doing that, given what we're faced with today. When you're faced with patients who are very ill and the hospital system is overwhelmed, it's very difficult to run that kind of trial. And as we see, any trial that's been coming out with information about remdesivir or plasma or any of these possible treatments, immediately many people are focusing on the flaws with the trial. But it's very, very difficult to do the trial properly given the conditions that we have right now. So given that fact, what are we supposed to do? Now, there are different levels of knowledge that we can gain from even imperfect trials. As we said before, there's many medications that have been suggested, they're antivirals, they've been in use for years, and maybe some of decades, and they might have an effect because they are antivirals, and they have a well-established safety record for other illnesses. So the first step of a trial is going to be to ascertain safety of this medication in the COVID population. So this is a medication, for example, hydroxychloroquine, which has been used for decades as anti-malarial, and then for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And we have a good sense of what the adverse events are going to be and what the risk factor is for this, for this medication. We don't have a sense of what the risk factor is going to be for this specific virus, okay? Now, then there's also gonna be a brand new medication that doesn't really have enough information at hand to really determine what the safety level is, like remdesivir, which was tried out on a couple of different, couple of different illnesses, but on a very small scale. So right now, we're also going to be the first step of figuring out, is this safe at all, ever, for anybody? Now, even the older medications, with many years of a safety record, it's important to keep perspective. Although they may have a well-established safety record, it doesn't mean that there's zero risk. As we started off with today, everything carries a risk. It just means that the risks are outweighed by the benefits. To take an example of hydroxychloroquine, it has been used for many years, first as anti-malarial, and then re more recently as, you know, against lupus and rheumatoid arthritis to help manage the symptoms. So it is a proven track record of efficacy against these three diseases. And for most people with these three diseases, the benefits outweigh the risks. But in reality, there are known risks. It's just that they, out, they are outweighed by the benefits. Among them are arrhythmia, which leads to an elevated risk of heart attack and death. Now, 
If we knew right now that hydroxy has no effect against COVID-19, it would make no sense to take it, even if the risks are completely minimal. If it has no effect, you don't take it, right? However, what happened over here was there were reports from a French doctor, Didier Raoult, if anybody speaks French, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, that he was having remarkable success with this hydroxychloroquine. And when that happened, many people in America, including myself, not that I know anything about medicine, immediately said, there's nothing that's working on these very sick patients. We have to try something. And if there's any evidence at all that it might work, then let's try it. I personally had some friends in Toronto, Canada, who had sick relatives. And we were discussing how the doctors in Canada were refusing to allow any therapies if they aren't proven. But obviously, given the nature of a brand new disease, nothing is proven. And these friends of mine are watching their relatives suffer without any real hope other than to say, hopefully they'll just get better. So the question is, why are the doctors not permitting them to use this hydroxy? Take the risk. So I called Dr. Jakob Spiegel, who's a you know, doctor at Stanford, originally from Canada, and I asked him, what's the deal with Canada? Why aren't they allowing doctors to prescribe it off-label for these desperate families? He told me that in general, Canadian doctors are more conservative than American doctors. But also, given the incomplete data that we have on COVID-19, the known risks may well outweigh the potential benefits. And part of the conundrum was that until we know more about COVID, we don't know if these symptoms of COVID-19 themselves may contraindicate a medication that has a risk of arrhythmia, right? So if you have a disease that is going to be attacking the heart, and that's the nature of that disease, then it certainly wouldn't make that much sense to be giving a, administering a medication that itself has a higher risk of arrhythmia associated with it. Now then it turned into a political football, right? I think probably most people know that, that most things today in the United States, you're on one side or the other. And the hydroxy became immediately a political conversation, which side you're on. Okay, so one question we're gonna to address tonight is how does halacha answer the question of whether a patient can undergo experimental treatment in hopes of a cure? To be more specific, in our situation, let's talk about someone who is sick with COVID-19, take hydroxychloroquine. The second question, is whether someone who is not sick can do something which may carry risks to themselves to prevent future illnesses either in themselves or in society as a whole. In our situation, can someone who is not sick engage in a COVID-19 vaccine trial? Alternatively, can someone who is currently sick but not yet that sick, or even if they are not yet sick at all, but they're in a very high-risk population we're given their, their age and some comorbidities where they might have you know, hypertension and they might have uh, you know, liver failure. And given the, the, the range of comorbidities that are associated with this, if they would get the disease, there would be a very high mortality rate. But they'd be permitted to take, specifically what we're discussing tonight is gonna to be, are they permitted to take uh, what we call plasma transfusion, which is they would take plasma, from someone who has survived COVID-19 and has the necessary antibodies to help fight against plasma, which is not yet proven that it's even true that by through transfusion, it could help someone else fight. But the question is, would someone who's in a high risk population, would they be permitted to take the risk of a plasma transfusion for the sake of perhaps it will work. And if they do get sick, it will raise their likelihood of surviving.
right? So those are the two questions that we're going to deal with tonight. In general, is a patient permitted to undertake experimental treatment once they're already sick? And the other question is whether someone who's not yet sick, can they do something which carry risks to prevent future illnesses, either in themselves or society as a whole? And those are the questions that I'd like to address tonight. Until we establish if these medications have a benefit for COVID patients, who is to say that the safety record is worthy of being used against COVID, right? So we've established that hydroxy is relatively safe, but we haven't established if it has any efficacy for COVID-19 patients, right? On the other hand, on the flip side, we could say it might save lives. How are we going to evaluate the risk-reward the risk ratio? What exactly do we do with that type of calculation? So until that efficacy and safety data in that specific situation comes in, should one be taking this medication? And then, like I said, we can also discuss the development of a vaccine in the eyes of Jewish law and Jewish medical ethics. Okay, so now let's start with our very first source, which is going to, actually, before we start that, let me just explain what that source is dealing with. So the question that we first have to deal with in Jewish law is going to be, what is our perspective on healing in general? In other words, do we say, perhaps, if God is in charge of the world and God caused this person to become ill, then perhaps that's what God wants? And who are we to determine that we should contradict what his will is? Now, this is the Karaite position. They believe that medicine was completely forbidden. This is also the Christian science perspective today. that they also believe you're not permitted to go to a doctor. So if you look at source one, excuse me, on the source sheet, and I'm going to read it outside. So the source is in the, as we are leaving in Exodus, as we are leaving um, Egypt, and God says, he said, if you will heed the Lord your God diligently, doing what is upright in his sight, giving ears to his commandment, and keeping all his laws, then I will not bring upon you any of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. So what the Karaites believed is that verse that says that I, the Lord, am your healer, indicates that there is no permission to go to any other healer. Only God could heal you. Nobody else could heal you. That was the Karaite position. But let's see what the traditional Orthodox Jewish position was. Go ahead. Um, so what I see that the word is translated as diseases, but wasn't it plagues? And is there a difference? Is a, it, what's the Hebrew actually mean? So machala does not mean plague. Machala means illnesses. That being said, I don't think their, their inference that the Karaites were making was literally from the word machala, because if so, you would be correct. I think their inference was from the fact that it says, I, the Lord, am your healer. Implication is that only the Lord can heal and nobody else can heal. And that was where the Karaites derived their, their concept from. And I'm not familiar with Christian science. In fact, I actually called uh, Dr. Spiegel right before we started and said, I know that the Jehovah Witnesses are not into blood transfusion. Uh, is there any uh, religion today that contraindicates going to a doctor? And he said the Christian sciences, Christian scientists actually do believe that. I don't know if they believe that from the same verse. I don't know where they get it from. But it's from the last five words is actually the source that they don't go to a healer. That if, if God is our healer, nobody else can be our healer. Now, let's look at source two. 
Source two is referring to two men fighting with each other. And it says, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with stone or fist and he does not die, but has to take to his bed. If he then gets up and walks outdoors upon his staff, the assailant shall go unpunished, except that he must pay for his idleness and his cure. In Hebrew, the rapo yirape. This is the source in the Torah that if I go over to someone else and we engage in some fisticuffs and I, I hurt the guy, right? Now he has to have a doctor come to give him stitches on his nose or you know, fix his nose, whatever it might be. So he has a doctor come. Guess who has to pay for his doctor? I have to pay for his doctor because I broke his nose. Now, the fact that the Torah indicates that it is on me who damaged him to pay for his doctor clearly implies that one is permitted to go to a doctor when someone gets sick. If he's not permitted to go to a doctor, how could I possibly be obligated to pay for his doctor bills? That is the traditional rabbinic interpretation of this verse. And let's look at source number three, just to bring the point home. The source number three is in the Talmud Bavli, in the Babylonian Talmud. And this is going back, uh, let's say about almost 2000 years ago now. And this is in Babakama, which is the first tractate dealing with torts. And it is taught in a brisa. A brisa is a set of, a compilation of Tanaic rulings. The, the Tanayim are the authors of the Mishnah and the brisa. They lived from about 2,200 years ago till about 1,800 years ago. It is taught in a brisa that the school of Rabbi Yishmael says, when the verse states, and shall cause him to be thoroughly healed, the rapo yirape, that verse that we just read, it is derived from here that permission is granted to a doctor to heal, and it is not considered to be an intervention counter to the will of God. So what we wanted to bring from those two sources is that the traditional Judaic opinion was certainly permitted for a doctor to heal. Now, I didn't bring this down in our sources, but Nachmanides, who's the 13th century uh, Torah commentator, and, and also a physician as well, he sources a mitzvah, not just a permission to heal, but actually a mitzvah, a positive commandment to heal from three different verses in the Torah. He says, number one, it says right here, the rapo yirape, heal you shall surely heal. Number two, it says, and you shall love your fellow as yourself. So certainly you're, you are obligated to heal someone else if you have the ability to do so. And his third source is, lo samod al damreyecha which means do not stand idly by when the blood of your friend or colleague is being shed. That teaches us another source that you are obligated to help someone heal themselves. Okay? So not only is it permitted, it's actually a mitzvah. It's a positive commandment, perhaps as many as two or three positive commandments to help someone else heal themselves. Okay, so we're not Karaites and we're not Christian scientists. I think we all knew that already. But now there is a little bit of a tension here. Right? So what's the tension? The tension is if we look at source number four and we see Deuteronomy 4.15 and it says, which we translated as safeguard carefully your life. That we have an obligation to do everything that we can to take care of this life that Hashem has given us. God gave us a life. We have an obligation to ensure that this life is as long-lived as possible. Now, why is that a tension? So let's look at the next source, and then we're going to describe what the tension is vis-a-vis -vis the question of tonight. Next source, source five. This is the Shochan Aruch, 
Shulchan Aruch was written by Rabbi Yosef Cairo. He lived in the 1500s. He was a Jew from Spanish, of Spanish heritage, and therefore he wrote what the Spanish tradition was, a Sephardi tradition was. And then uh, there was a glosses on the Shulchan Aruch written by the Haga, which literally means the, uh, literally means the um, glosses. But it's written by a fellow who, a great rabbi, whose name was Ramosha Isselis. Ramosha Isselis was from Krakow, Poland, and he had the Ashkenazi tradition of Psach, of halachic rulings. So let's read this. In the bold letters on top, exposed beverages were forbidden by the rabbis because they feared that snakes would have drunk from them and left behind venom. So this is a ruling that the Talmud tells us. It's actually a Mishnah that tells us that if there is milk that's left out uncovered overnight, you're not permitted to drink from that milk the next day. Why not? Perhaps the snake came the night before and came, crept into the house and drank from that milk and left some of its venom when it was drinking from the milk, and therefore it's dangerous. The Shulchan Aruch concludes, but now when snakes are not found amongst us, it is permitted. In other words, this fear is only a fear when it's a realistic fear that perhaps this would be something to be afraid of. What I really want to look at, though, is the Haggah. Similarly, you should be careful of all things that cause danger, because danger is stricter than transgressions, and one should be more careful with an uncertain danger than with an uncertain isser. An isser is a prohibition. So when we think of the rabbis, when we think of how concerned they were with making sure that people don't violate a prohibition of the Torah, well, indeed, they're actually more concerned with making sure that someone does not violate or put their lives at risk than to violate a prohibition of the Torah. And therefore, they also prohibited to go in a dangerous place, such as under a leaning wall or alone at night. So what do we see from source number four and source number five? What we see is that the rabbis are certainly very, very concerned, and the Torah is very, very concerned about making sure that people are very careful with their lives and don't take risks with their lives. So on the one hand, we have an obligation, a mitzvah, for doctors to heal people who are sick. On the other hand, we have a mitzvah that someone cannot put their own life at risk. If we did not have the second idea from source four and source five, then what we'd be able to say is, if an individual is willing to take on a specific level of risk, he's allowed to do that. We have patient autonomy, as we say today. But in Judaism, we do not believe that. The patient does not have the right to decide how his life should go. Patient cannot say, I refuse any treatment, except under certain limited circumstances. And where do we get that from? From these two sources. God gave us our life. It's not up to us to decide how that life goes away. So therefore, that tension of figuring out you're obligated to, obligated to heal people, but we also have a problem of Healing someone always involves risks, right? So how, how indeed do we know that we're permitted to assume any risk in treatment of a dangerous disease? Nachmanides, once again, is the source. And he explains, when it says in the Torah, you shall surely heal. You know what it's coming to teach us? He says something like this. He says, any given therapy, depending on the specific patient who it's given to, can either cure that patient or kill that patient. And you don't necessarily know beforehand, right? And certainly in those days, you did not have a genetic analysis of each individual patient. And you didn't know if this specific type of drug is going to work better on this specific patient or that specific patient. But they recognize that some patients will do better with the cure of the therapy. And some patients will actually do worse with it. And some patients won't have any effect at all. So what he explains is like this. When the verse tells us, heal, you shall surely heal. 
The verse is giving permission to doctors to try to heal even when the therapy itself bears a risk. Okay, so that's an important point to recognize. There is a tension here, but yet there's still a permission to go try to heal even if there is an inherent risk. Exactly what level of risk, that's gonna be what we're gonna be discussing. Now, the, in America today, medical trials generally have four phases in human subjects. Phase one is to figure out the highest dose that can be given safely without side effects. Phase two, and that will be a very small trial, there won't be that many people in it. Phase two will be raising the number of participants and continuing to monitor side effects and add efficacy as a factor. Phase three would be a large scale comparison of this proven safe therapy against the current standard of cure in a double blind, in other words, neither the doctors nor the patients are aware which one of them, which patient is receiving the, the trial, the experimental therapy, and which one is receiving the placebo or the standard of cure to see if it's more effective than what we currently have. Phase four is once it's been approved, then what we have is a long-term study uh, after it's already been approved and you no longer need emergency approval, you no longer need to be enrolled in a trial to receive that medication, we have these long-term studies to determine the long-term side effect. And on that note, there will be three different factors that will be considered when faced with making a halachic decision. The safety of the therapy, the efficacy of the therapy, versus what will happen absent any treatment, right? So three separate questions. One is the safety of the therapy in a vacuum, the efficacy of the therapy in a vacuum, and then the trying to establish how the efficacy of this treatment works versus the standard of care or placebo. The same three questions, really, that the medical profession will try to establish before treatment. Now, what does the Torah say about figuring out the risk-benefit ratio? Can an observant doctor design and oversee a trial that bears risks to the participants if there may well be a benefit to society? Well, one thing's for sure, it would definitely require informed consent from patients. And from the patient perspective, is one allowed to incur risks now that have the potential for saving from a deleterious outcome later? So the first angle I want to look at is risk of doing nothing or standard of care. How do we draw the line in terms of trying to figure out what the risk is of doing nothing? At what point do we say that this risk is so great as to allow us to take risks in the the risk of doing nothing is so great as to allow us to take risks in the treatment. Let's look at our source sheet. And we look at source number six. Source number six is a story in Malachim 2, in Kings 2. There were four men, lepers, sitting outside the gate. They said to one another, why should we sit here waiting for death? So a little bit of context here. This is in the, the, the uh, Aramean army, or the Syrian army, was besieging Samaria, and there were lepers. Well, lepers are not permitted to stay inside the city. So they're sitting outside the city. There was a famine at the time as well. So they said to one another, if we sit outside the city, we're going to die. We have no food. So what's going to happen to us? If we decide to go into the town, what with the famine in the town, we shall die there. And if we just sit right here, we're also going to die. Come, let us desert to the Aramean camp. If they let us live, we shall live. And if they put us to death, we shall but die. 
They set out at twilight for the Aramean camp, but when they came to the edge of the Aramean camp, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the Aramean camp to hear a sound of chariots, a sound of horses, the din of a huge army. They said to one another, the king of Israel must have hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Mitzrayim to attack us. And they fled headlong into the twilight, abandoning their tents and horses and asses. The entire camp, just as it was, as they fled for their lives. When those lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into one of the tents and ate and drank. So interesting story in the prophets. Let's see what the Talmud does with this story. The Gemara analyzes the situation in which one may receive medical attention from exile, from Gentiles. A little bit of context to this story as well. In the Talmudic times, the Gentiles of that era, the idol worshippers, would not would not stop at anything to kill a Jew, and therefore the sages forbade us from receiving medical attention from Gentiles due to the concern that they would kill us outright. There are, however, certain circumstances in which one is permitted to receive medical attention. So Rava says that Rabbi Yochanan says, and some say that it was Rav Chizda who says that Rabbi Yochanan says, if there is uncertainty as to whether a patient will live through his ailment or die from it, the patient may not be treated by Gentile doctors due to the concern that a Gentile doctor may kill him. But if it is certain that he will die from his affliction if he does not receive medical attention, the patient is treated by them, as it is possible that a Gentile physician will save him. The Gemara challenges, even if it is certain that the patient will die if he is not treated, nevertheless, there is value in temporal life. In other words, it's worth it for the patient to not be treated by a Gentile physician who may kill him right now. And it's true he has a terminal death sentence. And it's true he's going to die in a month or even a year or however long it's going to be. But the Gentile physician might kill him right now. So why should he be permitted to be treated if he might, get, he might end up getting killed right now by the Gentile physician? The Gemara explains we are not concerned with the value of temporal life when there is a possibility of permanent recovery. And therefore, it is preferable to receive medical attention from a Gentile despite the risk involved. Gemara asks, and from where do you say that we are not concerned with the value of temporal life? As it is written with regard to the discussion held by four lepers left outside of a siege city. If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we also die. Now, therefore, come and let us fall onto the host of the Arameans. If they save us, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall die. What is the Talmud understanding from that story? The starving lepers decided to risk premature death rather than waiting to die of starvation. Gemara asks rhetorically, but isn't their temporal life to be lost? In other words, if they stay right where they are, they're going to die, but they'll starve to death in another couple of days. If they go right now to the Aramean camp, they might die right now. So why isn't it preferable for them to remain in their current location? Rather, don't we see from here we are not concerned with the value of temporal life? In other words, if someone is terminally ill and knows that they're going to die, they should not be concerned for the fact that the possible cure for their death may also lead to them losing their life earlier than they would have lost it otherwise. And therefore, one should be permitted to go to a Gentile doctor who may kill him right now, but may not kill him at all, to save the fact that he might die, he's going to die no matter what if he doesn't get treated. So there's a very important Tosvos in source eight. And Tosvos explains like this. Tosvos is a supplementary commentary written on the Gemara between the, by a bunch of sages who lived between the age of uh, about 1100 to 1300. And we say like this, how can one say that we aren't concerned for temporal life? How can this Gemara tell us that that's the halacha? In Masachat Yoma, in Tractate Yoma, which deals with the laws of uh, Yom Kippur, 
we find that we are permitted to move debris on Shabbos. The case we're talking about over there is where a house has collapsed and there's someone underneath that house. They might be alive, they might be dead. The law is that we are permitted to move the debris, even though normally it's one of the prohibited actions on Shabbos. We're still permitted to do that. Why? For the sake of possibly saving someone's life, even if they would only live for a short period of time. Implication from that topic is that temporal life is certainly something we are concerned about. Otherwise, why are you permitted to move it and violate the Shabbos if you might not end up saving them for more than a couple of hours? We therefore have to explain that our Gemara isn't telling us that we are never concerned for absolute life. Rather, depending on the circumstances, we rely on this concept to be lenient either way. Of course, in Judaism, life is always of value. Even one moment of life is of value. But depending on the scenario, we can actually utilize this in a lenient way. How would we do this? Over here in our topic, the lenient position would be to assume we are not concerned for temporal life. Because if we do say we're concerned for the chayesha, for the temporary life that he will have, then he's for sure going to die. If we don't want to take a risk of the fact that the doctor will kill him if he treats him right now, then he's definitely going to die in the future. Therefore, we say we're not concerned for it. But over there, the lenient position would be that we are concerned for the temporary life. If we weren't concerned for temporary life, he is definitely going to die, the person who's underneath the, the bricks. In both cases, we will leave the scenario of certain death to doubtfully gain life. Okay, so what do we see from these sources? That the dividing line in halacha, in Jewish law, is between chayesha and chaye oilam. If someone is going to live for a limited period of time, they're permitted to risk their life, to extend their life. If someone is going to live for what we call an unlimited amount of time, then they are not permitted to risk their life. Now, how do we see that? Because the case in the Gemara is where someone is definitely going to die. Then they're permitted to risk their life. Now, when we call this a temporary life as opposed to a long-lived life, it's a little bit of an interesting way to put it. Because technically, we all have a terminal condition. It's called life. We're all going to die one day. So what we mean to say is if there is a clear and definitive end to the person's life, that the medical consensus is that there is prognosis is to die within a specific period of time, we consider him to have only a temporary life. And if he only has a temporary life, he is permitted to take greater risk to save his own life. How do we define temporary life? It seems to be in halacha. The way to define temporary life is 12 months. Up to 12 months is a temporary life. More than 12 months is a permanent life, as it were. Okay, so the next question I want to deal with is, now that we've defined that there is a, in Judaism, there's a criteria called the benchmark is going to be at exactly 12 months worth of life, that's where we lower our ability to accept risk. If it's only going to be living for 12 months or less in a terminal illness, then we're going to permit a way higher level of risk than we will for someone who is not going to, is going to be living for more than 12 months, we will not permit the same level of risky procedure. Now, so what level of risk can we incur when we are in this position of terminal illness and when we are not in the level of, permanent, uh, of terminal illness? So it's actually a three-way dispute over here between the Tzitz Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, who died about 15 years ago in Jerusalem. He says up to a 50% risk. You have a patient who is currently terminally ill, and there's a procedure which may or may not save his life. Up to a 50% risk in terms of that procedure, perhaps dying with this procedure right now and losing whatever life he had left, 
Sitzeliezer says you're permitted to accept up to 50% risk. If the doctor assesses it at more than 50% risk, you're not even able to do it at all. The Achiezer of Chaim Ezer Grudzensky, who was a great Torah scholar in Europe before World War II, he passed away in 1938 or 39, I believe. He says that even more than a 50% risk is permitted to assume for the sake of a, a uh, risky procedure that may extend one's life past that chayesha. Rebel Yashiv, however, says it's exactly 33% risk. How does he know that? He uses our Gemara, our Talmudic passage that we just read. What was the scenario? These lepers had one of three options. One option was to stay right where they are, 33% chance they're going to die. One option was to go into the city, presumably they're going to die. And one option is to go to the, um, to go to the, to go to the, to the, to the camp. And if they go to the camp, then there's a 33% chance that they're going to get killed. And there's another 33% chance that they're going to be given food by the members of the camp. So I just want to say that again, if anybody was following, I'm up to 133% because I made a mistake here. So it's a 33% chance if they go to the city, they are not going to have any food in the city, right? That's one of their three choices. We'll leave them with no food. If they stay right where they are, they're definitely going to die. So that's not an option. Either they're going to go into the city, not have any food and die. Go into the camp, die right now go into the camp and get food and survive. So there's a 33% chance that if they went into the camp, they would live, right? And yet still, we find they're permitted to do that. But the Asher says you're only permitted to engage in a 33% risk and nothing greater than that. And I want to say a story with Rabbi Asher that he himself actually followed this lehalacha. He followed this in Jewish law. When he was 94 years old, he had an aortic aneurysm and a 50% chance of death if he would have a stent surgically placed in his body. He refused to do it. He said, even though this is a terminal illness, a 50% chance of death for a specific procedure, not permitted to do so. At the age of 96, he had an aortic dissection. And at that point, it wasn't going to be a matter of months. It was going to be less than that. They found the team at Columbia Presbyterian in New York City with a record of planting stents in people in his population and with his level of risk. And they had a survival rate of over 70%. So the risk of implanting the stent was less than 33%. They flew this team into Israel. They operated on Rabbi Yashiv, and he lived another six years to 102. Okay. So now we've established that there's this benchmark called Chayesha in Halacha, in Jewish law. And the Chayesha is the 12-month terminal illness up to... Up till 12 months, if there's a prognosis of up till 12 months, we can accept a way greater level of risk than if the prognosis is more than 12 months. And we said that there's a dispute exactly what that percentage is going to be. So now we still have to deal with, though, A, we dealt with the, the, the uh, criteria of how long the, they'll live absent any treatment, and we dealt with what sort of risk you're able to accept in the actual procedure, and that's a three-way dispute. And the next question is, how do we deal with efficacy in Jewish law? The phrase that we use in halacha is a refua beduka. Refua beduka means a checked method of healing. We're looking for empirical evidence that this method is going to work. The Chassam Sofer, or Moshe Sofer, who lived in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the early 1800s, said, that when you are having a question about a medical procedure, what we don't really care about doesn't make sense mechanically, doesn't make sense in logic that this should be an effective 
therapy. That's not important to us. What's important to us is that we've witnessed empirically that this is true and this really does work. That's the only question that we're going to be asking ourselves. Okay, so we're going to need empirical evidence. And that's the, the, the Jewish way of looking at things. Now, I want to be clear. The fact that we're seeing empirical evidence, it does not mean a scientific method of proof necessarily. And in truth, even with scientific methods, I was reading some articles over the past couple of days. Out of 49 medical studies from 1990 to 2003 that were cited more than 1,000 times by other medical journals, 45 of those 49 medical studies claimed that the therapy was effective. There were replication issues with 16% of those 45 could not be replicated, their results at all. 16% replicated the results, but were not nearly as effective as the original study claimed. 44% they replicated it and remained the same, and 24% were not challenged. What we see from here is that even what we consider to be established medical science sometimes isn't necessarily true. So the idea of saying that halacha is going to rely on empirical evidence, but not the scientific method of empirical evidence, is not so crazy. Because in truth, even with the scientific method, it's not always going to pan out. Now, what exactly do, do the results have to be then to have witnessed to permit this treatment? So this is, once again, two Jews, three opinions. There's a dispute. One opinion is that there has to be a two-thirds of doctors saying that this is the only hope for this fellow to survive is to have this treatment, without even defining what the likelihood is that treatment will be effective. All they have to do is say that this is his only hope, that would be enough. Alternatively, it would have to be the consensus medical opinion that it's a 50% chance of having an effect, and that that's going to be the level at which you'd be permitted to do so. Now, how do we achieve this with an experimental treatment? You don't have enough data yet. How are you going to be able to say, this is what you're permitted to do? That's going to be the big question, really. So it seems that Judaism would fall out on the conservative side and say, rather don't treat than take the risk that it could actually be dangerous or cause some people to die before they would die necessarily if you don't know for sure that it has a level of efficacy. So to get back to the hydroxy question, Initially, we did not have that much data. It was based on that one study in France that was a very, very glowing study about the benefits and the risks associated with it. But on Friday, Lancet Journal put out a, a very large study in which they were analyzing patients, and they excluded any patients who were administered hydroxychloroquine after the first two days of the positive diagnosis. And even after doing so, they found that it had an exceptionally high mortality rate. And that even though in general, it seemed to have been a relatively safe therapy for those other types of diseases that it's been used on, well, perhaps the nature of COVID-19 is such that combined with the hydroxychloroquine, it actually raised the mortality rate, which is why we see that it's not always so smart to take a very limited scope and say, oh, perhaps we should then act based on the information from that limited scope and then use that and start changing the, the results of what's going to happen to people's lives. That's not always smart to do so before we have better data. And Judaism, as well as the Canadian doctors at least, seem to have a more uh, conservative track record with this type of uh, therapy and will not administer it until they are certain that it will be efficacious, right? 
So in terms of doing the treatment, so I think what we've established is like this. It's going to be very difficult to do a completely experimental treatment unless it could be established based on prior experiments with other types of illnesses that there is zero safety risk. Otherwise, it's going to be very difficult to say that you should do a treatment of that nature. Okay. Now, the, the next question is going to be, what about a vaccine or a similar prophylactic treatment? So vaccine, we're not up to yet. And the vaccine was a thought experiment where you're going to, you're going to give a vaccination to people and then expose them to, uh, you know, to the actual virus. What would be a similar prophylactic treatment? So I personally got involved with a project on the East Coast to help with uh, convalescent plasma, to take plasma from people who have survived COVID-19 and to infuse it in people who are currently sick. And the thought was that perhaps what we should be advocating for right now is to, to actually administer this to people who are in a highly vulnerable population, i.e. people who are in nursing homes or assisted living centers in which there's a very, very high mortality rate once they actually test positive. And perhaps what we should be doing is one of two things. Either we should be giving this plasma infusion as soon as they test positive in that high rate, or perhaps take it a step further, even giving it to people who have not yet tested positive, but they're in a population where if they did test positive, it would be very high risk. Maybe we should give it to them prophylactically, right? So those are two similar questions, to administer the plasma prophylactically or immediate upon positive uh, diagnosis or a vaccine. So I actually, I was asked to write an op-ed together with uh, Chuck Taubman and Josh Rosenheim. And we were advocating for the use of this in this highly vulnerable population. And then it hit me, wait one second, is this even permitted from a Jewish standpoint to, to advocate for this? Well, maybe we're not permitted to give this medication because it does carry some level of risk. I sent the question to three different people. I personally didn't feel comfortable advocating for something that might not be halakhically permissible. So I've gotten two answers so far. One said yes, one said no. The third one hasn't answered yet. Okay. But what's important to recognize is that we, we have to be aware of the of the possibilities of the that, that perhaps it will be it will have a negative effect. And to make sure that we are that we're making this decision with following the halakhic procedure and the halakhic process. Now, the, when it comes to a vaccine as well, there are two Jews, three opinions, right? So when it comes to a vaccine, is one permitted to engage themselves in a certain level of risk for the possibility that it will help society or for the possibility that it will help themselves? Once again, two different opinions in, in halacha. One opinion is that you are permitted to, 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 uh, to have that risk because it might help society in the long term. And one opinion is you're never permitted to put yourself at risk for society. And one opinion is when it comes to, well, you might be saving yourself, you're permitted to do so. One opinion, you're not permitted to do so. So now I want to look at our very last source. And the very last source is a Tiferes Yisrael. And Tiferes Yisrael, which is Yisrael Lipschitz, and he lived in, in Europe in the mid-1800s. And there was something in the mid-1800s in source 10 and there was a, a smallpox, it's really an inoculation, it's not a vaccination. What they would do in those days, is they would actually inoculate with some sort of, uh, it was live, but not as dangerous as smallpox, okay? So as far as Yisrael was asked, are you permitted to inoculate a child with the smallpox vaccination? Even though through doing so, they are putting their child at risk that they'll die 
from the vaccination. And it's not 100% obvious that they will certainly actually contract smallpox in the future. The Tverus Yisrael's response in Source 10 is, one is permitted to inoculate their child with a smallpox vaccination, even though through doing so, they are putting their child at risk of one in a thousand that they shall die. For that risk is still far smaller than the risk of death from smallpox contracted naturally. And entering certain danger now and protecting against future possible danger that will be a greater risk is permitted. The proof to this is from the Jerusalem Talmud, which states that if your fellow is in mortal danger and to rescue them, you would have to accept a small risk of danger, you would still be obligated to do so. We want to bring a proof from this last source is like this, that indeed to accept the risk of one in a thousand that somebody will die is considered halakhically insignificant. And once it's considered halakhically insignificant, the future benefit from this risk that has been undertaken is certainly outweighs any risk that is around here. And as we see, anytime you ever talk about rescuing someone else, in truth, when you talk about doing a, a plasma donation even, who knows, maybe the, the needle that was used was not properly sterilized and who knows what could happen when you do anything. There's always a risk of everything that you're doing. At what point do we say the risk is completely negligible and we're not afraid of that risk? And the answer that Tzfaris Yisrael gives us is that one in a thousand is a risk that we're ready to accept. And that's a risk for something that will possibly happen in the future, perhaps that person will die. To me, this is a pretty clear answer, and I'm not answering this halacha lamaisa, as we say. If someone would come to me right now and say, what should I do? Here's the question in front of me. I, I would defer to sages a lot greater than me. But it seems like this is a pretty clear source that when it comes to risking one's life immediately for the possible payoff of having a, a lesser risk in the future, definitely permitted. And to me, this will be a pretty clear source that to administer plasma prophylactically to a very high risk population would be permitted. And the main thing that I hope I, I conveyed tonight, and I, I want to take questions after this, is it's important to recognize that whenever we're faced with a question of ethical import or anything of that nature in today's day and age, we have to realize that we have a very rich tradition of Torah learning, and scholarship over the ages that has what to say about this topic and has what to say about this topic to us today in America, even today, even with all the scientific advances, the Torah is still eternally true.